and you thought he only had one talent. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor Brown. Wow, that was a glorious and wonderful surprise. And I know that came from your heart. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians today. But we're dealing with all of Hebrews. Every once in a while, I like to do a message. I did this a lot with Revelation, where the whole book is in my mind and soul at the same time. I call it distillation. The Hebrews in toto, pros hebreos, to the Hebrews. And so this will be sort of a move toward distillation, and I'll simply call it regarding completion for notes, even though I have a feeling this message might not correlate with the notes precisely. You might want to read them separately from the, the verbal message today, or maybe not. Yesterday I was thinking, and instead of studying, I started thinking about what I used to do when I was a very young pastor and before. I used to study Thompson Chain Reference Bible all the way back when I was at a place called His Church, which was an offspring of Chuck Smith's church in Calvary Chapel. I was converted and had, I've told you many times about the experience I had in the University of Vermont, and a friend of mine who kind of led me along a little bit was from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, IVCF, and he said, you're not going to fit in here. And I was at first, I was kind of like, what do you mean? Am I not a Christian? And he said, no, he's, you're not going to fit in here, and you're, don't go to Campus Crusade either, because you're not going to fit in there. And then he said, I will tell you, though, there's a bunch of burnouts on the bottom of College Avenue, College Street in Burlington, and you can't miss it because there's a sign on top of the house that said, Jesus saves. And he said, they are from Redondo Beach in California, and they were part of that Jesus revolution with Chuck Smith. So when you go, if you go see the movie, you'll know that that's where I first had my first exposure in the Jesus revolution. So I went to my first sermon there with hair down to my shoulders and a Fu Manchu mustache and bare feet and jeans. And the pastor had a Mexican wedding shirt on and hair down to his shoulders and a beard down to his chest. And he taught on the prodigal son. And it was perfect for me. It was, it was a, a slam dunk in my soul. And so in those early days, we used to read the... Thompson Chain Reference, because it had literally chain references to every book. And I used to look at the key verses to every book in the Bible. And that's when it started to really spark my interest and love for the Word of God. And so yesterday I was just thinking, well, what are, not key verses, but what verses stand out? And I started to think, well, in Matthew 16, 16, what stands out to me is Peter's declaration when Jesus asked him, who do people say that I am, and then who do you say that I am, Peter outburst and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's the verse that stands out to me in Karamathean, the Gospel of Matthew. And Mark, what stood out wasn't a key verse, but a standout verse is Mark 5.36. Don't be afraid, only believe. Don't fear, only believe. That is the standout verse to me and a verse to live by. 
And then when I thought of Luke, there were so many verses you could think of in Luke, but the one that stood out and stands out to me is Luke 24, 45, where Jesus opened the minds of his disciples that they may understand the scriptures. And that meant that they may understand them as the testimony of Jesus. Then I thought of John's gospel, and I thought, well, obviously it has to be 3.16. And I said, no, the one that stands out to me is John 8.28, when Jesus said to those who were opposing him, when you will have lifted me up, you will know that I am he. And that was a wonderful depiction of Jesus Christ and him crucified. In Acts, of course, Acts 3.21, where Peter talks in the beautiful gate at after the restoration of the man who came to him and begging, and Peter saw him restored, he talked about all the prophets from time immemorial, all of them without exception, God using them as his voice, in which he spoke univocally of what? Apokatastasis panton, the restoration of all things in Acts 3.21. When I thought of Romans, I thought, of course, at the heart and center of the chapter in Romans 8:31 but the verse right after that God did not spare his only begotten son as he spared Isaac the son of Abraham but freely handed him over for us all that we, he will not only do that but freely give us all things how will God not freely give us all things since he has already freely given his son and then I thought of the Corinthian correspondence, where my heart is really kind of focused lately. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, the heart of that, the standout verse to me is, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that links up very carefully with 2 Corinthians 5.19. The standout verse in 2 Corinthians, where we're kind of creatively moving in our two-core study as we interweave that with Hebrews, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing the world's trespasses to them. And those are the standout verses to me. In Galatians, what stands out is 6.14, may it never be that I should ever glory or boast in anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In Ephesians, of course, you might guess that's Ephesians 1.10, God summing up all things in Christ, which is the mystery of his will. And then you might also think about Philippians, where in Philippians 3.20, fooled you on that one, our citizenship is already in heaven from whence we expect a deliverer, a savior, who shall come and change these bodies of humiliation and make them conformable to his own body of glory. He's able to do this, says the next verse, according to the power by which he subjects all things to himself. Colossians, well, that's a good one too. Colossians 1.20, he reconciles all things by the blood of his cross, the cross of his son, whether things in heaven, things on earth, whether thrones or dominions. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, you've turned your hearts from idols to serve the living God. In verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven. 2 Thessalonians, may God the Father, may Jesus Christ himself and the Father console you and comfort and encourage you who have given us everlasting consolation and comfort. First Timothy, there's a whole bunch of them, but 2.5, there's only one God and one mediator between God and man, 
the man Christ Jesus in the next follow-up verse who gave himself as a ransom for all, of course. I would go with 2 Timothy 2.11. Faithful is the saying that if we died with him, we will live with him. And if we suffer with him, and we do, we will also reign with him. Titus 2.11 is another slam dunk. The grace of God has made its appearance, salvation for all mankind. And so these verses are standout verses to me. When you think of Philemon, Paul's little letter to his friend who held a runaway slave named Onesimus, Paul said in Philemon 1.18, whatever he has accrued, whatever expenses he's been to you, well, put that on my account. And if it's Hebrews, it's we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. We may not see all things under his feet. Why? Because we have not come yet to the radical alteration of the universal condition of all things and the liberation of all creation. But we can look back and see that there has been a radical alteration of the human situation in Christ, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So we walk by faith to see that, that the world has been reconciled to God. And that makes us not look at anyone anymore, any longer, like we used to. James, well, 121 kind of hangs in there, but 118 even more so to me. It stands out when it says that God by his own will has begotten us by his own will to make us a kind of first fruits of his creation. First Peter, well, 2.9, we are a royal priesthood, and that also gels very sweetly and elegantly with Hebrews. And, of course, in First Peter 2.25, you have turned, and that's a great conversion verse, to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. We've all been turned aside, we all turned aside, but now you have been turned to the bishop and guardian of your souls, our Lord Jesus Christ. That same bishop and guardian is he whom God the Father, the God of peace, the God who effected our reconciliation, has led up from the dead, taking his son by the hand, like Jesus took the little girl by the hand and said, Arise, my little lamb. The father raised his son. The father seats his son at his right hand, And if you see it the way I see it in my heart, you see a tender movement of a father toward his only son, placing his nail-scarred feet on a footrest, all his enemies. Rest your feet here, son. In Hebrews 13, 20 then, we also see this, the resurrection of the shepherd and guardian of our soul. In 2 Peter 3.18, the standout verse to me is always 3.18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him belongs the glory both now and into the ages to come. And then there's 1 John. We could select a whole host of verses there, but how about this one? God is love, and herein is that love that he sent his Son into the world that we may live through him. He sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4, 9, and 10 links up sweetly with 1 Corinthians, or 1 John 2, 2, and Romans 3, 25 as well. 
In 2 John, I saw and thought of this a lot during the time we were apart. I long to see you face to face that our joy may be full. And in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than this, said John the pastor, and I say it too, that my children are walking according to the truth, aligning to the word of God and the truth that's embodied in Jesus Christ. A standout verse in Jude, keep yourselves in the love of God, praying always in the Holy Spirit, Jude 121. In Revelation, there's a lot of verses there that stand out, not least the Lamb of God slaughtered before the foundation of the world. In Romans 5, 5, and 6, in Romans, or Revelation 5, 5, and 6, Revelation 13, 8. But this one, in Revelation 19, 10, said by the angel to John, the essence of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. The essence of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Now, as I continue to study the word of God, verses stand out. And I'm learning to go with the one that stands out first in my mind, the one that stands out first in my mind. I follow it. I ignore commentaries. I ignore other thoughts. I ignore current events. I ignore the complaints that you hear from people. I ignore the compliments you hear from people. I focus on what stands out from the Word of God. What stands out from the Word of God is 2 Corinthians 3.16, and I hope to hit this today, where it says, when it turns to the Lord, and that word epistrepho is used, meaning conversion. When it turns to the Lord, the veil shall be removed. What is it there? What is the it that turns to the Lord? Well, it's the heart of Israel. The heart of the children of Israel is singular. All the children of Israel have one heart, singular. The heart turns to the Lord. Paul didn't say if the heart turns to the Lord. He said when it turns to the Lord, meaning the heart in 2 Corinthians 3.14. So when it, the heart of Israel, turns to the Lord, the veil shall be removed. Not if, but when. The heart of all of Israel will turn because it will be turned by the Lord and the veil over their hearts and minds will be removed and they will see Jesus and become like him. How do I know this? Because all Israel shall be saved. In Romans eleven twenty six, another standout verse. And one that stands out even higher than that is eleven thirty two. He will show mercy, saving mercy, to all Gentiles and Jews alike. The Israel of God came slamming into my soul as a galaxy of insights when I read Romans eleven twenty six. All Israel will be saved. And when I blend that with Second Corinthians thirteen, it will be saved when the heart of the children of Israel, one heart for all the children of Israel, turns to the Lord. But when that happens, it's in the context of all of humanity being saved. Because Romans 11.25 says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the mystery. To musterion. I don't want you to be ignorant 
of the mystery. And if anything emanates from my heart as a pastor teacher, as someone who teaches the word of God, it's that. I don't want you to be ignorant of the mystery. Hardness in part has happened to Israel for a short time. Hardness in part for a short time. Until all the Gentiles come in. And then all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved and completed when all the nations come into Israel to complete the Israel of God. And that's the salvation of all. That's why Paul keeps going. He keeps rolling until he hits 1132. And so God will have mercy upon all Gentiles and Jews, Jews and Gentiles. And he's already begun that process by a preview in what we call the church, which is Christ's body, not comprised of Gentiles only, not comprised of Jews only, not ex-pagans like myself only, not, not completed Jews as they're called or Messianic Jews only, but Messianic Jews and saved pagans all together in one body, a new covenant community whom God has made able ministers of a new covenant, able servants of a new covenant. The mystery he's talking about isn't just that Israel is hardened in part for a while and then all the Gentiles come in and then all the Jews turn too and all are saved. That is the mystery. All will be saved. But the mystery goes back to an earlier letter. In my view, Paul wrote Ephesians earlier than Romans because there's where he laid down the main revelation that he would work out for the rest of his life. That God, according to the mystery of his will, would sum up everything in his Christ. And that's the mystery. And so part of that mystery is the salvation of all of Israel, but only when all the Gentiles come in. And we've done the math there. Pleroma, the fullness. The fullness of the Gentiles, Pleroma. And the fullness of the Jews, Pleroma. All the Jews, Pleroma, plus all the Gentiles, Pleroma, equals all humanity all of humanity being saved. I didn't come to the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ because a human mentor told me about it. I didn't come to the universal impact of the cross of Christ because I learned it from a teacher or because I agreed with a pastoral consensus. Far from it. I learned these things because I seriously studied the Bible. I seriously studied the scriptures. I've given my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength to that for my life since I was 21 years old, on and off at first, then completely. Serious study of the Word of God. I can't recommend it highly enough. And through serious study of the Scriptures, this keeps being verified to me over and over and over again so that eventually... You could put your life and stake your life on it, stake your eternity on it, stake your confidence on it. And so we are very bold and we are always confident. In fact, I think we are always confident is the fourth affirmation of Tetelestai Phalanx. And why are we always confident? Paul said it in the context of 2 Corinthians 5, 6. 
He said, and so we are always confident, meaning all through this life we're confident. Why? Because at the end of this life, we have a house not made with human hands, eternal in the heavens. God made us for this. God made us for this. If you have a loved one who has gone from this life and departed from this temporary exile that we're still gutting out, and they've gone to be with the Lord, they are in a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. They're where the place where God made them for. They're where they were made for. We were made for this, Paul said. And God, in the meantime, sealed us with the Holy Spirit until that happens. We were made for this. And so we are always confident. I'm always confident in this life because I know the end of it is the striking of this tent and in the heavens having a house not made with hands, everlasting in the heavens. Is there an interim period where we're in some form of housing until we get to our final mansion? Quite possibly. But the point is, we were made to be in a house everlasting, not made with hands, a human body of glory, where we live forever and ever with perfect joy at God's right hand and experiencing the pleasures forevermore at his right hand. So in this life, we're always confident. We can see why people despair and why there is an overwhelming trend of depression in the world today because people simply don't know that they're made for this. They've been made for this destiny, and they desperately need to know it. We're always confident, and Paul wrote this then in the light of an insight that God made us for a house eternal in the heavens, and that this time in between the two great alterations, we may always be confident of this, confident of our destiny in Christ. And this correlates with an extremely important passage that we are moving toward in Hebrews. Hebrews 10.35, don't throw away your confidence, therefore. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.6, and the pastoral writer who agrees with Paul in Hebrews emphasized it by saying, don't throw it away. Don't throw away your confidence. It has a great reward. But you just need to add into the mix perseverance. Because once you've done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. And he that is coming is coming, and he will not delay. But then, of course, it goes on to say, the righteous one lives by faith. And we are not of those who draw back into the perishing, but we are those who push on to the salvation of the soul. Hebrews 10.39. We're always confident. And that's one of the things that we should acknowledge and confess if we're part of the Telestai Phalanx. We're always confident. We're weak, but we're always confident. One of the most significant reasons that we are confident is because it is finished. It is finished, Tetelestai. That's why Tetelestai should have that affirmation. In a word, Tetelestai, one word, 
It's a sentence, but it's only one word in the Greek, tetelestai. Realized in Jesus Christ and him crucified. We always say, well, that's found in John 19.30. No, it's found in John 19.28 first. Yes, 19.30. But more significantly even in 19.28. Because Jesus Christ and him crucified, while nailed to the cross, still physically alive, having become sin, having been made sin, and with that over, Jesus knew, the word oida is used there, he came to fully realize that it was finished, to tell us that. He knew it was finished. And so he also knew who he was, and he knew that everything he said and did was in the fulfillment of the scriptures. So in fulfillment of the scriptures, Psalm 69:21 and also Psalm 22:15 incidentally he said I thirst and then having known that it was finished and refusing the gall the sour GI wine that was offered him he simply announced it did he holler it I don't think so I think he just said it he said it's finished And then he bowed his head and entrusted his spirit to the Father. He knew, oida, he came to fully realize it's over, it's done, it's finished. What was finished? The new creation of all things was finished. The new covenant in his blood was affirmed, endorsed, and sanctioned forever. And the new creation was finished. When we see in Revelation 21.5, look, I'm making all things new. That was said by God on a throne. But whenever God is pictured on the throne in Revelation, such as Revelation 22.1, so is the Lamb, who is God. The God on the throne saying, it is done Gegomanon is the same as the lamb saying from the cross it is finished to tell us die the God on the throne is the lamb from the cross the crucified Christ at the moment when he said finished the new creation of all things was finished all people are now in Christ and if anyone is in Christ There's the new creation. So we don't see people any longer after the flesh, after their gender, after their class or caste, after where they live, after the house they grew up in, after their political party. We see them entirely new now. For if one died for all, then all died. And now all are raised with him. And in Christ. So God from his throne saying it is done is the same as the lamb saying from his throne, the cross, wearing his crown made of thorns. It is finished. It's made. It's completed. It's done. The new creation of all things. He may as well have said, look. I, 
a crucified Jew dying the death of a criminal and a slave have just completed the new creation. It's pretty remarkable that all of God and all that God wants to reveal about himself is in a crucified slave, naked and exposed before the world. There's God. So I determined to know nothing. You're supposed to tell us who God is, Paul. What are you going to do about it? There's nothing else I can communicate to you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because that's God. That's the God who is love. That's the God who is goodness. That's the God who is everlasting mercy. That's the God who came with such vulnerability that his arms are outstretched before the whole world and he's naked before the whole world and beaten because he was that vulnerable in his love for you. He endured the hostility and the antipathy and the hatred and the fierce ferocity of people controlled by sin against himself. So consider him. Consider him if some of that antipathy comes your way. And fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, in fact, instead of the joy that was set before him in heaven, he endured the cross and is now exalted at the right hand of the Father. That's our main point in Hebrews 8, that we have a great archpriest seated at the right hand of the Father. If you think we're spending too much time on Hebrews, and some people get a little impatient, why is he spending months on Hebrews 8, 8 through 12? About the new covenant. Well, if you think about it, in the second century, somebody somewhere, probably the Bishop of Malta, said, let's call these 27 books that we've all collected the Kine Diathike, the new, cov- new covenant. It's only... New Testament once, and that's in Hebrews 9, and that's when he makes an analogy of covenant to testament because the testament or a will in testament is only in force after the one who makes the testament dies, and so the death of the testator is required. And so somebody thought of the word new covenant or new testament for those 27 books. When I thought of it, I thought, man, that's okay, and then I thought, well, maybe that's a good word for it. So if we're spending quite a lot of time on the New Covenant passage from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which is the Septuagint 38, 31 to 34, in Hebrews 8, 8 through 12, it's because all of the New Covenant, all the 27 books are filtered through that one passage. And what if we just stay there? What if, that's, we, what if I stay there until the last message I preach? What are you going to, what's God going to do? Well, at the judgment seat of Christ, Rick, you never finished that book. Well, I'll just look quickly to his son and say, thank you for finishing it. (laughs) Now, God declares to be good what he's done in creation. God declares what's good. In fact, if I was to think of a standout verse in Genesis, I'd have to go with Genesis 1-1, which begins in the Greek text with N-R-K, in 
the beginning. But R.K. is Christ. He is called R.K. The R.K. is Christ. God made everything in Christ. In Christ, God made poieo, the heavens and the earth. That's not only the beginning, but that's the end. The end is in the beginning, and the beginning is in the end. God made everything, the new heavens and the new earth, in Christ. When did he do this? When Jesus said, it is finished. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The slaughtered lamb is associated with the moment of the creation of the universe. In Revelation 13, 8. I can't explain that. And so I'm proclaiming that and letting God explain that. And so God always views what he himself does, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, as being good. Kalos is the Greek word, or kalos is the Greek word used eight times in Genesis. In Genesis 1-4, he creates and he says, it is good. He creates and he says, it is good. He creates on, the, on this day and he says, it is good. But then when he surveys the whole thing, all things together in its entirety in Genesis 1-31, he says, it is kalos leon, kalos leon. It is very good. It is exceedingly good. What's exceedingly good is when the whole creation is complete in Christ. That's God's plan. And that was the eighth time he used the word kalos in Genesis. He looked at what he did and said it's good. And so when we're rewarded for things done in our body that are good, I hate to tell you this, but you're going to be rewarded for something God did. In you. God made you, and he declared you good because he made you. We haven't made ourselves. Who do we think we are? We haven't made ourselves. You can look in the mirror and say, you didn't make that. God made us. We are the people and the sheep of his pasture. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. Our competence to be ministers of a new covenant is not from us. It's from God who made us. He that has made us, made us the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 100 tells the story. If you want to read that sometime on your own. God declares to be good what he's done in creation. He declares the entirety of his creation Humanity finally included as very good, exceedingly good. Kalos Leon. That reminds me of Leon. Leon DeVoid was the pastor that I first heard who came from Redondo Beach wearing a Mexican wedding shirt, sandals, and jeans. And I fit right in. It's funny, I didn't fit in where Phil Adams told me I wouldn't fit in. You're not going to fit in there or there. You're going to fit in there. And then, you know what I taught when, he, when uh, Leon said, 
I think you got the gift, so would you like to teach something? And I said, yeah. And he said, how about 2 Corinthians? And I taught 2 Corinthians in that little commune at the bottom of College Street. You know what else I did? You might see the movie where a guy named Lonnie goes out and preach on the street in the Jesus Revolution. That's what I did. Day after day after day. Preached on the street. You say, where'd you start? Ah, John 3.16. Somewhere. And just kept rolling like I'm doing now. Rolling, rolling, but hollering on the street without a microphone. You say, what happened then? People stopped. Sometimes they gathered in little clusters and groups. Demon-possessed people stopped and screamed and tried to intimidate me because there was a lot of them up there in Burlington, Vermont, because of the Satanist cults that were there. People would stop on their way to work or on their, in their noon hour, because I usually like to preach on noon hours, and I just hammered the gospel, hammered the gospel, hammered the gospel, and did that for a lot. I did that a lot. Sometimes we went to a church. And we actually went to a, church, a congregationalist church, Leon and I, and preached to the people coming out of the church. Because congregational churches didn't really preach the gospel back then, and we thought we were hot shots at the time. And the police came. And at that time, I just happened to be between jobs. And so they said, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm between jobs. And they went, yeah, we figured. <laughs> and... Leon, with his hair like this and his beard like this and his Mexican wedding shirt, said, oh, I'm a pastor. And they said, "Uh, well, just move along. They didn't know what to do with us. They said, just move along. But you don't know what to do when your heart is so full of the word that you, so I said, well, I'm just going to go out on the streets and do this. And maybe I'll do that again someday. Instead of you know, being formal and putting on a monkey suit every Sunday or whatever, go out and do it again. I've actually thought about this this week. What if I just went down to the boulevard in Oakmont and started preaching? Probably not. Yeah. I know. Thanks. Don't keep verifying that for me. Or Pittsburgh. Or something like that. Well, maybe some of you will do it. But in any case, God declares to be good what he's done. And when it was all done, he said, now that is very good, Leon. (laughs) Carlos, Leon. Because he was seeing everything in Christ. That's the mystery. That's what's very, 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 very good. And we already see this. We see this in future world. We see already Jesus crowned with glory and honor. We don't see it with the eyes of our head, but we see it with the eyes of our heart. We see this new creation. In the eighth use of kalos in the Greek text of Genesis, then we have a hint of the new creation, because the new creation is always related to the eighth day. After the seven days, a new day. An eighth day, the eighth day, the new creation. And when the new creation of all things is accomplished by the enthroned God, God himself says, it is done. Echoing the word to telestai in John 19, 28 and 19, 30. Gegonon, it's done. 
can also be translated, it's created, it's made, it's produced, it's finished in Revelation 21.6. But also, that correlates splendidly with John 19.28. Knowing that everything was now already Ada, Ada, Delta, Ada, Ada, already. Knowing that everything was already telestai, finished, teleo, teleo. Jesus knew this, hanging, nailed to the tree. Knew that it was finished. He knew in his heart that it was finished, so he said it with his lips. You and I have come to know in our heart that it's finished. We simply say it with our lips. I don't think he said it too loud. In fact, no, none of the other gospel writers even record it except John, who was the beloved disciple who was close enough to hear it. He was close enough to hear it. So Jesus might have simply said, at this volume, it is finished to tell us die. Something like asa in the Aramaic which is the last word of Psalm 2231. They will declare to a generation yet to be that it is done. Asa. While still alive on the cross, Jesus knew that everything was already accomplished. He knew that everything was already... Hey, this is why I'm always confident. I know that everything's already accomplished. Knowing that everything was already accomplished, he said, in fulfillment of Psalm 22.15, the Greek text is Psalm 21.16, and Psalm 69.21, Greek text 68.22, I'm thirsty. Consider Hebrews 4.3b. His works were finished, finished, same word used in Revelation 21.6, ginomai. His works were finished since the foundation of the world. Since the foundation of the world. The lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. His works were finished from the foundation of the world. On the cross, in time, in space, outside of the gates of Jerusalem, in A.D. 30, Jesus, the Lamb of God, said into time what he had already spoken in eternity. It is finished. His works were finished since the foundation of the world. Apokaraboles kasmu. Genethenton. From the foundation of the world or from the creation of the universe makes one think of the Lamb was slaughtered from the foundation of the world, or literally from, not literally, but more to the point, from the creation of the universe, thus linking the slaughtered lamb with the creation of the universe, in fact, with the creation of the new universe of all things. Again, Psalm 22.31 in the Greek text is revealing, it also uses the word poieo, you'll see it in print. In the concluding verse of that messianic psalm, it's a psalm called 
aistotelos in the Greek regarding completion. This is a psalm regarding completion. Hebrews is a homily regarding completion. The key word is completion. It says in the final verse, and they shall announce God's righteousness, his righteousness to a people to be born because the Lord acted. His righteousness because the Lord acted. God acted in Christ to reconcile the world to himself. This is the action of God, the doing of God. What God does, what God makes, what he produces by the word of his mouth, he declares to be good. He views as good. And so it is God in you both willing and working toward his own good pleasure. What God in you wills and what God in you works is what God views to be good and declares to be good at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema to Christu. Everything else is phallos, not so good. The Christian Standard Bible has the insight that righteousness is what God has done. And that's a pretty good insight. The translators themselves got the point. Righteousness is what God has done. The gospel is something I'm not ashamed of because in it, the righteousness of God is unveiled from faithfulness to faithfulness. And that means God's faithfulness to God's faithfulness expressed in Jesus Christ. How could I be ashamed of something God did? I've, I've been ashamed of a lot of things I've done, but I can't be ashamed about what God has done. God has saved me. He did that single-handedly without me. I can't be ashamed of what God has done. I can be ashamed of a lot of things I've done and thought in my life, even since he saved me. But I can't be ashamed of his righteousness or what he's done and what he continues to do. I don't know how many hundreds of times I've prayed in effect or in reality or with these words, create a clean heart in me. Why, did I Why do I pray, create a clean heart in me? Because at that moment, or for a time, there was not a clean heart in me. Not a clean motivation, perhaps. I needed a new motivation. A right spirit. Maybe my spirit wasn't right. Maybe my disposition was askew. Maybe I wasn't forgiving. Create a clean heart. And renew a right spirit. And God does that. And I'm not ashamed of what God did. Even the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures based on the Hebrew Masoretic text, which is a, an inferior Hebrew text to the original Hebrew, wherever that is, we don't really have that. But the 9th century Hebrew Masoretic text even gets it right in Psalm 22. To 32 in their text, they shall tell of his beneficence, God's beneficence, his goodness. Pastor Brown's song, 
to people yet to be born, and then it says, for he has acted. What is righteousness? Righteousness is what God has done. What is justification? It's what God has done to you because of Jesus Christ. God ultimately and definitively acted. He acted. And there's never an act that ever happened in history or time and eternity greater than this act. God acted in a crucified Jew named Yeshua. Whom he also raised from the dead. Oh, he also raised him from the dead. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was in a crucified Jew that died the death of a criminal and a slave, reconciling the world to himself. That's counterintuitive to our thinking, isn't it? I think it is. Until we determine to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, then it's the very normal way to think. And that's why I started thinking, what's the key and what's the standout? 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. What's the standout in 2 Cor 5, 19, where we're headed in our creative upsurge toward it? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Where? In Jesus Christ and him crucified. In a crucified Jew in AD 30, expelled from the society at the time because of not being worthy to be in their city. Mocked, spit upon, scourged, whipped, beaten beyond recognition, nailed to a tree. And that only began what he had to endure from God as he became a curse for us. God was there reconciling the world to himself. Elie Wiesel, who wrote so poignantly and heart-wrenchingly about the Holocaust, tells the story, and I've told it before, of a man standing in line in a Jewish concentration camp, and they were hanging Jews from gibbets, hanging them there together. Sometimes they would hang father and son together. And one man was looking at this horrible image of a father and a son hung together on a gibbet, a post. And somebody behind the man said, where is God? And the man looked at that image and he said, there he is, right there. The father and the son hanging from a tree. God was in Christ. There's God reconciling the world to himself. He didn't have to be reconciled to the world. The world had to be reconciled to God, and God did it. God did it. God did it. And so I'll wind down to a close because I didn't plan to quite go this way. I didn't think I'd go with all those key verses from most of the books, I probably skipped one or two.
But teleos is also a key word used in Hebrews 5.14. For those who have completed an education in the word of righteousness. If you've completed your education in the word of righteousness, you know that righteousness isn't what you do, but what God has done. And then what God in you both wills and does. And then you're able to discern good from evil. Evil is an offensive word today to many people today because they've destroyed the standard by which evil and good are discerned. That's why they're not skilled in the word of righteousness. The adjective teleos is also used in the living center of Hebrews 9.11 to describe the greater and more complete tent. What about that tent where Jesus entered? It's a tent not made with human hands not made with human hands into which Jesus the Messiah entered with his own blood this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many what's many mean well that's an understatement typical of Jesus to understate something about himself Shed for all, says 1 Timothy 2.6. All of this talk about what's completed, what's once and for all, is found in passages like Hebrews 9.26 and 28 and 10.2, where we find the word hapax, once and for all. And f-hapax, even strengthened and intensified in Hebrews 7.27, 9.12.10.10 in Romans 6.10, which describes a once and for all and forever finished act and action of God and passion of Christ by which eternal salvation and eternal redemption, along with reconciliation, was wrought by God in Christ, the slaughtered Lamb of God. These actions entail a new creation of all things. And so that's where I began to see an elegant correlation between Hebrews 8, 8 through 12 and 2 Corinthians 3 and the comparison of the covenants. In Hebrews 8, it says, not like the covenant I made with the children of Israel, your ancestors, when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. What a picture that is. I took them by the hand. This reminds me of Jesus in Mark when he says, don't be afraid, only believe. Then he goes in and finds this girl. Is she in a coma? Jesus says she's only sleeping, but he uses the word sleep for death. There's mourners there. They're crying. They're professional mourners. They go there to cry. People are professional mourners sometimes. They don't go to mourn someone. They go to so, so that you can see them mourning someone. Watch how sad I am. Watch how affected I am by their passing. And so Jesus kicked those people out. You know, he politely said what I would say this way, get the hell out of here. <laughs> Yesterday I went to a tailor and I said to the lady, she's really good at what she does. I said, um, could you fix this button? She did, actually sewed this button on here. And so she sewed and she had really... Her fingers were really painful because of neuropathy and everything. And I said, man, your fingers, are, 
here, let me give you this money. She goes, get the hell out of here. <laughs> so that stuck with me. So I did, and I got a button on my coat free. It's sewed right on here, and much to her pain. That's like, imagine the pain someone else endured for us and gave us something free. See that? See what I did there? Now I'm closing. Here's we ha- here we have this wonderful, elegant correlation re-examining this passage. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 3. I said to, so we better. Not like Moses. Not like the covenant I made with your ancestors when I took them by the hand. Jesus goes in there and he takes a little girl and he says, Talitha kumai. Now, many, there's only one place I've ever read where the, that Aramaic term, which... Mark uses a few Aramaic words because Jesus spoke almost exclusively in Aramaic, not Greek, Aramaic. Talitha kume has a root, and the root word is, get up, little lamb. And she arose. She was 12 years old. She got up. She lived. It was resurrection. The word for get up is igero. It means, it's the word for resurrection. And she stood up, anistemi, the other word for resurrection in the Bible, egero and anistemi, both used there. Same with the demon-possessed boy. After the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus goes down. There's a boy possessed by a demon so that he cannot hear or speak. And so Jesus throws the demon. The demon leaves, but the demon shakes the child first and goes into all these conniptions. And you don't even pay attention to the conniptions and all the things people do when they freak out because that's just them on the way to submission to the Lord. They just don't know it yet. And he took the boy by the hand and said, get up, Egero, and the boy stood up, anistemi. Both the little boy and the little girl, both words for resurrection used both times. When I took them by the hand, So I picture the father, I picture a very human scene of the father in the tomb taking his son's hand and saying, little lamb, my child, get up. And the son arises, anistemi. And then the son ascends. And the father says, I see, son, that your feet have been wounded in this, in your crucifixion. I'm going to tell you something. Sit down until I make all your enemies a footrest for those nail-scarred feet. I picture this scene very tenderly, very humanly about God, the Almighty. When I took him by the hand, it's not like that covenant. And so here's the elegance of this, and we'll close. 2 Corinthians 3, 13, my translation, and not like Moses, the mediator of the old who habitually placed a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look, would not look intently at the end of what was transitory. We're not supposed to be looking at what's transitory, 2 Corinthians 4, 18, but what is eternal, the new covenant glory. Even now their minds are hardened, Paul said. In his day, his Jewish friends and kin and even his family. He said, he didn't say this judgmentally. He just says, Hey, I go to synagogues with them even now. Their minds are veiled. And even to this day, the veil is unlifted when they read the Old Covenant. That's the Old Testament. Tes palaias diatheikes. Because only by the Christ is the veil taken away. 
So verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their heart. But here's the verse we started with. But when, the word is henika, when, it's taken right out of the Septuagint of Exodus 34, when, when Moses, inevitably, Moses would take the veil off when he went into the holy place, into the tent to talk to God. When he went out to the people, he veiled his face. When he turned to the Lord, and it was inevitable that he would go to the Lord and turn and lift the veil. Paul is exegeting this with creative genius that can only be the Holy Spirit and said, when Moses went in, and he inevitably always did, he went in and lifted the veil. And the same inevitability is here. When it, the heart of the children of Israel, shall turn to the Lord, and it will, not if, but when. When it, that's the heart singular of all the children of Israel future, over all the course of time, when it, that's the heart of the children of Israel, turns, that's as a result of conversion, which is inevitable and will be caused by God because all Israel will be saved and turn. What did he say in Isaiah 45, 22? Turn to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. But with the with the declaration and the word for them to turn, he creates in them the turning, and they turn and are saved. All the ends of the earth. And what happens after 45.22, 45.23, that occasions the micro-apocalypse in Philippians 2, 5 through 11? I swear, says God, by myself, that every knee will genuflect and every tongue acknowledge that I am Yahweh, and we know now Yeshua is Yahweh, to the glory of the Father. When it turns, when it turns, and it will, the heart of all of Israel, as a result of conversion, which is inevitable and caused by God, when it, the heart of Israel, turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. They shall see him as he is and be like him, just as we will see him as he is and be like him. We've been made for this. God made us for this moment when we see him in the beatific vision. When we see him in the beatific vision and are beatified and beautified, transfigured and transformed eternally by what we see, God made us for this and so we are always confident. Father, thank you for this opportunity to explore the word and to take a circuitous route, maybe. But wherever we walk around in your word, well, it's pretty wonderful. So we thank you for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to continue this Wednesday.